Welcome to A Reason for Hope. My name is Adrian, and I'm in studio with our senior pastor, Scott Richards. Hey, everybody. And Pastor Sean Richards. There he is. Happy Friday, and we're so thankful to be here with you. This is A Reason for Hope. This is a weekday Bible answer program where you, our audience, can ask questions about the Christian worldview, about the Bible, about how to interpret it, whether we can rely and trust it. Uh, does God exist? Did Jesus rise from the dead? <clears throat> and many, many more questions like that. So we'd encourage you to chime in. There are multiple ways you can do that. So if you're new to the program, we live stream this program every weekday, Monday through Friday, 5 to 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time. We have folks uh, chiming in from all over the world. And if you want to join us on Facebook, you can do so. Just go to facebook.com forward slash CCF Tucson, or just search for Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, and then join the live stream and use the comment section as a place for you to ask your questions. You can also do the same thing on YouTube. We simultaneously live stream there as well. Just search for A Reason for Hope on YouTube, or you can go straight to our YouTube channel, which is youtube.com forward slash the at symbol, A Reason for Hope 546. And of course, if you want to avoid some of the big mega social media platforms, you can just go straight to our website. And that's CalvaryChristianFellowship.com. And once you go there, you can simply uh, click that Watch Live tab there and watch this program, also all of our services as well. And there's a little chat box where you can leave your questions. We encourage you to take advantage of that. And there's also a little prayer button that if you have something weighing heavy on your life, on your heart, that you'd like uh, our community to pray for, please take advantage of that. Now, if you are part of Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, we also have an app that you can download from the Apple Google Play Store. And uh, I really love this thing because it's got its own built-in digital Bible where you can not only highlight text and have it save those highlights, you can also leave personal sermon notes. And you can join and create chat groups. We've got our calendar of events. And you can listen to all our archives of previous messages that we've given over throughout the Bible. <coughs> as well as this program. And if you want to add us to one of your smart devices and watch our services and this program, you can add us on any Amazon Fire or Roku product. So be sure to take advantage of that if you haven't yet. And if you want to ask a question of this program a little more discreetly, you can also just do it the old-fashioned way and email us at questionsforhope at gmail.com, questionsforhope at gmail.com. Also encourage you to take advantage of one of the last places on earth where we still have some semblance of free speech. That's the formerly known as Twitter, the X platform. You can follow our senior pastor there, Scott Richards, at ScottR4H. I'd encourage you to take advantage of that if you haven't done so already. And uh, before we get to the news and your questions, we'll take a moment to uh, pray. Okay. You want to pray for us, Sean? Sure. Yep. Dad, thank you that we have the chance to be here. By grace, allow us to be able to re relate your word, to receive your spirit, and to all gather together for the same purpose. We know we don't have anything to offer if it first doesn't come from you, which is why we're receiving what you have to offer. And if that's going to be today, reminders of hope, reminders of truth, or just an encouragement to keep living in light of both of them, we pray that it would all be from you meaningful because you are involved in it and that this broadcast would include both of those things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. 
Well. <laughs> well, indeed. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, quite a bit uh, going on. I want to give you a little bit of a prophecy update before uh, we dive into your questions. As, as many of you probably already know, before airtime, the ceasefire between Hamas and uh, Israel has officially come to an end. Uh, the uh, resumption of uh, Israel's campaign to wipe out Hamas uh, launched uh, earlier today. And uh, Benjamin Netanyahu's prime minister's office released a statement about the end of the ceasefire, the reason for it. Uh, this was the statement they made. The Hamas ISIS, ISIS terrorist organization has violated the outline. It has not met its obligation to release all of the women hostages today and has launched rockets at Israeli citizens. Upon the resumption of fighting, we emphasize the government of Israel is committed to achieving the goals of the war releasing the hostages, eliminating Hamas, and ensuring that Gaza never again constitutes a threat to the residents of Israel. Now, if you've been with us on the program, you know that uh, we saw this coming. Uh, yesterday, we put up on our Twitter feed and talked a little bit on the program uh, about uh, a murder that took place, a terrorist attack in Jerusalem at the south entrance to Jerusalem. Three uh, Israeli uh, citizens were killed by two brothers who openly identified and admitted they were members of Hamas. Hamas's, uh, uh, if you want to use the term brain trust, I'm not sure there's a lot of brains behind all of this, but uh, they also acknowledged that these two brothers were bona fide uh, Hamas uh, uh, terrorists, and uh, they commended them for their actions in Jerusalem. Uh, three people killed, including two elderly people, uh, one woman, uh, over 11 uh, injured, four seriously. We don't know their condition as of uh, airtime right now. But when that went down, by definition, if you have a member of Hamas uh, murdering Israeli citizens, what you've got in a sense is uh, another uh, chapter of what began this conflict in the first place, the slaughter of over 1,200 Israeli citizens uh, unprovoked. Uh, same thing happening in Jerusalem. So we predicted, and we hated to be right, but it seemed like there was no alternative, that uh, the uh, hostilities were going to resume. If Hamas was so bold and brazen as to commend uh, these two brothers, who were both taken out, by the way, uh, one by uh, a, a bystander, uh, who ha happened to have been on leave from his unit. It was fighting in Gaza. He was heading back, uh, catching a bus to head back to Gaza to rejoin his unit. And just happened to see this going on. He happened to, uh, as long, along with a, an Israeli policeman, take out uh, these uh, two terrorists. But uh, the bottom line is, once that happened, uh, the only way that Israel wasn't going to resume uh, its campaign against Hamas in the south uh, would have been if Hamas had made a uh, majorly grand gesture in the area of saying, no, 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 we really want peace. And Israel, I believe, defined that. Prior to this, I had never heard about Israel making a request that today all female hostages, uh, a minimum of 40 of these hostages, had to be released all at once. Uh, I get the feeling that after the attack in Jerusalem, and this is speculation, but I think it's warranted, after the attack in Jerusalem, uh, word was that uh, uh, the only way that we are not going to resume, resume a full military operation against you is if uh, you do something as dramatic as release all of the women hostages that are left. Hamas refused, 
And so, as the kids used to say, it's on like Donkey Kong again. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, the uh, description of uh, what's going on in Gaza right now is uh, pretty uh, dramatic. Uh, we are told uh, by our good friend uh, Amir Safadi on uh, his uh, Telegram feed, this summary of what's happening, the IDF continues to attack throughout the Gaza Strip. Female observers identified a terrorist squad that approached the IDF forces in the north of Gaza, and they were eliminated. Terrorist squads then launched uh, missions against uh, other forces, which were also eliminated. In recent hours, Air Force fighter jets have attacked terrorist infrastructure, military headquarters, where Hamas terrorists operated, underground sites and military buildings from which anti-tank missiles were launched at the fighters uh, earlier today. IDF forces attacked a number of terrorist squads throughout the Gaza Strip, including a squad that was identified by observers of the Northern Brigade and the Gaza Division. The Air Force, directed by the 215th Fire Brigade, uh, eliminated two terrorist squads that launched mortar bombs at IDF uh, forces in the Gaza Strip. We are also told that things are heating up up north. Uh, the official Syrian media are reporting an Israeli attack in the Damascus area right now. According to Shiite sources, uh, the attacks are happening in southern Damascus and are very substantial at this point. As we mentioned, it is equally important, if not more so, to watch what's going on in the north of Israel as it is to the south where Gaza is. All of our attention is kind of on Gaza right now. That's where all the media is paying attention. But in the north, you have the Hezbollah uh, guerrillas uh, that are infinitely uh, better armed and organized and equipped and backed by the uh, Iranian Republican Guard Corps uh, uh, infrastructure. Uh, and so if Israel goes to war with uh, Hezbollah in Lebanon, that is going to be something that is going to cost Israel, I think, dearly in terms of potential civilian casualties. The strategy is going to be to try to uh, overwhelm the Iron Dome defense systems just by the sheer number of rockets uh, being launched in that area. So we really need to be praying uh, that a, a lid is put on that at this point. But uh, Israel is going all out along this line. And uh, when you uh, start to see some of the things uh, that uh, Hamas has been saying, uh, we begin to understand why. Uh, for instance, uh, the uh, Hamas leader in Gaza, Yaha Sinwar, who, by the way, uh, spent time in an Israeli jail for quite a few years, uh, was released as a uh, goodwill gesture uh, after he received life-saving brain surgery had a tumor removed by Israeli uh, surgeons. And th this is the way he returns the favor. Uh, he made this statement. Uh, the leaders of the occupation, referring to Israel, should know October 7th was just a rehearsal. Hmm. Now, uh, one Twitter site that I follow, uh, the Mossad, it's a satirical site, but uh, they call themselves the Mossad. Satirical yet awesome is the way they build this. Their response was, so was wiping out one-fifth of your minions as far as things getting started nice. is concerned, uh, which I think is a great response. Uh, another thing, just to set the uh, tenor of all of this, uh, you know, the reports have been uh, coming back about a steady stream of releases by Gaza media about the deaths of hostages. 
they're not all at once, but it sort of drips and drabs here. And uh, we also kind of warned you earlier this week, if you're following us on our Twitter feed, that uh, the news that is eventually going to come out about the fate of these hostages is not going to be good. Mm. Uh, I, I would be very, very surprised if 50% of those hostages are returned uh, unharmed, uh, if that. Uh, these, uh, if you wonder why, uh, I take this point of view in the Jerusalem Post to the headline, Hamas, it doesn't matter how many hostages are still alive. A senior Hamas member said that the family of 10-month-old Kafir Vivas paid the price because of your occupation. They have a picture of this very adorable 10-month-old that was killed by Hamas as uh, one of the hostages. Uh, this senior member with a, an interview on CBS News, his name is Gehazi Hamad, st stated when asked how many hostages are still alive, he said, I don't know. The number is not so important. Uh, Hamad also told CBS that Hamas kidnapped 10-month-old Kafir Bibas and his four-year-old brother Ariel in order to force them to impose pressure on their government to tell them that you pushed us to hell. When asked how a 10-month-old baby and a four-year-old boy could take action to pressure the Israeli government, Hamad simply repeated, they have to exert pressure on Israel, their government, in order to tell them that you're going in the wrong way. And I'm looking at a picture of this 10-month-old right now, and just it's just almost overwhelming. Uh, the Hamas leaders of the Bibas family paid the price uh, because of the occupation. Hamas has claimed in recent days that uh, Kafir, Ariel, and their mother Shiri were killed after being kidnapped on October 7th. The terrorist movement published a video of Shiri's husband on Thursday as part of its psychological warfare efforts. The IDF has stressed that it has not yet been able to confirm Hamas's claims. Well, I'm not sure that uh, there would be any advantage for Hamas to make that claim if it wasn't 100 uh, percent true at this point. So uh, what are we going to see? I think we're going to see Israel ramping up its operations. I think you're going to see the international community, so quote unquote, uh, make statements uh, to Israel that you've got to back off. Uh, you know, again, we talked about the horrendously wrongheaded remarks of our Secretary of State uh, yesterday uh, where he said that Israel did not have the credit uh, in order to completely wipe out Hamas, uh, the idea of having the support of uh, world bodies and nations and so on. But in distinction to this, uh, and this goes to a good portion of your heritage, Sean, uh, the uh, new uh, prime minister of the Netherlands has weighed in uh, and said uh, that there really is uh, no problem with all of this because Jordan is the Palestinian state. Send them all to Jordan, <laughs> which was the rough equivalent in the Arab world of taking a can of Coke and pouring it on a red anthill. So, yeah, they're not fond of the truth. Yeah. So, uh, uh, Gert Wielders, I believe is his name. Uh, he is, uh, the fellow that made that particular statement. And he has and, made many amusing ones recently. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So, but he is now, the prime minister of uh, the Netherlands uh, once sort of uh, written off as some sort of uh, far uh, extreme <coughs> minority there. He's now the prime minister. So we're seeing a lot of movement uh, away from 
the previous policies that uh, invited Islam. And oh, by the way, uh, where this hits closest to home, last thing I'll tell you about, I just stunned. Uh, you know, I was raised uh, in a home where uh, quite a few members of my family went to UCLA. Well, uh, there was an article today showing that on the UCLA campus yesterday, there were Palestinian sympathizers, Hamas sympathizers, going about tearing down the posters you've seen of uh, the individuals that are being held hostage. That seems to be a kind of a au courant uh, sort of uh, way of uh, expression. But the thing that made this uh, disconcerting was while they were tearing down these posters, they were all holding large machete-style knives on campus. Mm. Uh, you know, I think we remember a few years back the uh, big dust-up about the need for safe spaces on campus uh, where people's feelings couldn't get hurt. Well, I used to think that was ridiculous. Now I'm beginning to think that having safe spaces might not be a bad idea after all. Especially how on multiple occasions they've had to lock Jewish students inside of their libraries in order to accommodate the mobs that were going after them for the actions, or actually not actions, of their nation a world away. Yeah, that was, that was in New York. So once again, be praying for the Israeli people, be praying for a turning from the heart for the Palestinian people to the knowledge of the true and living God, would turn away from the inevitable consequences of following the spiritual musings of a 7th century uh, Middle Eastern warlord. Uh, very, very sad. What can people do to be more informed? I, I imagine there are some, maybe even young believers, believers who have been caught up into the mainstream media's narrative, uh, taking the side of terrorists. What would you recommend uh, folks do to just be more informed about the history of the nation, the history of the land, the truth about the issues, uh, and, and not get caught up into the, con the confusing and misleading mainstream media narrative? Well, we're going to try to do our best to provide uh, just such a resource. I think you've probably got uh, a uh, slide there that can show the information on this. but. Uh, uh, we're going to be doing a conference in January called Understanding uh, Israel with S-T-A-N-D uh, in uh, caps. And what we're going to be doing at that is we're bringing out uh, the renowned tour guide, uh, retired IDF Colonel Ronnie Simone. We've had him here at the church before. Uh, but uh, we're going to provide kind of a comprehensive view of what we really need to know about Israel on this two-day conference. Uh, the first part of the conference is going to be uh, about uh, talking about what's happening there, current events uh, that are going on in Israel at, uh, at this particular time. Uh, I'm going to be sharing a uh, study out of uh, Romans chapter 11 as to what a biblical understanding of Israel is and the place the Jewish people still have. And to add to that, and this is just really going to be uh, you know, a, an incredible opportunity for those of you who maybe have never had the opportunity or for financial reasons can't see in the immediate future, visiting Israel, uh, we're going to have uh, Ronnie uh, give his Israel Comes to You presentation. It's an enhanced presentation with a lot of wonderful media. It's going to be the rough equivalent of going with Ronnie on a tour of Israel mm. in, in one day, seeing some of the major sites, seeing <clears throat> the uh, biblical implications of these sites. And uh, I definitely think it's going to be a life changer for you. Never look at your Bible the same way again after being able to see exactly where the things mentioned take place and the significance behind them all. Highly recommend that. 
Uh, $25 uh, per person. If you want to sign up, you can go to calvarychristianfellowship.com and sign up today. Just click on that icon and it will uh, lead you uh, exactly uh, where you need to go. Uh, and you'll save your spot. Uh, again, uh, we don't have unlimited seating for this and we think it's going to fill up rather quickly. So uh, again, this is going to be going on on January 19th. So you might as well get in early and avoid the rush. Uh, after uh, January 7th, I believe, uh, the price is going to uh, go up to $50 a person. So get in as quickly as you can. We try to encourage people to do that because it allows us to have the uh, wherewithal to mm -hmm. uh, be able to plan and put together meals and so forth like that. So, right. And uh, call me jaded, but in regards to the question for people who are quote-unquote caught up in the anti-Israel rhetoric, the reason they are is not because they're looking for truth or answers. So if you want to provide them with a resource they're not looking for, they're not going to be looking for it. They're not going to pursue it. Our approach has always been to make sure that the door remains open if they want to hear an alternative, if they want to know the ideology that is motivating Hamas and that Israel does not in fact hold that view, then we can continue to preach the truth. But when it comes down to it, the overwhelming majority of these people, and by these people I mean those who are siding with Hamas, are going to continue to hold that position no matter what you say, no matter how reasonable or polite they would be in any other context or situation. We rightly identify this as what the Bible calls a strong delusion, something that is not just intellectual but spiritual, and unless God's going to soften their heart, then there's no sense in arguing or talking to them. Now, we just, now tell us, to, not to interrupt, but I, I didn't want to miss my train of thought. You were sharing with me uh, a conversation you were able to have with a person in Egypt mm -hmm. online about these kind of issues. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, uh, the individual is very polite in all matters religion. Uh, when it came to how I would talk about Islam as opposed to how I would talk to Muslims, uh, you would definitely see a difference between how I would comment about a subject and talk to an individual. Uh, they were very cordial. They were very polite. English was their first language. So there wasn't too much of a misunderstanding there. And whenever they made a claim about my faith, I made sure that if I was to make any response in kind about theirs, that I provide a chapter and verse, and they regularly appreciated that. But the problem was, of everything that we could talk about, whether it was the nature of salvation, the nature of judgment, the nature of law, the nature of the spiritual, the nature of God, it all fell apart when the topic of Hamas and Israel came up. And essentially what was being exchanged was the plain facts in which we've been providing our sources for on this program, and it being thrown back in our face as Zionist propaganda. That n This is a quote, no babies have been beheaded. Israel has always been the aggressor. There are concentration camps in Gaza, and that Israel is totally at fault for instigating this over the last several decades. So, um, as any conversation can go, and sticking by my principles, I didn't return vitriol for vitriol. I just said, well, if you want to move on to another topic, then we can. But understand that this is not something that anybody is going to be rational about. If they have handed their souls over to Satan, they're going to share his heart towards those he hates, and that includes, first and foremost, God's chosen people. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. <clears throat> wow. So well, thanks. Uh, the only other follow-up question I'd have, and it kind of dovetails with what you were saying, Adrian, is if people wanted to go and 
find solid sources on how to uh, get up to speed about the basics of what you need to know to really communicate the good news of Jesus with mm. a Muslim. What sites, what resources would you recommend? And specifying that, Hamas aside, we're talking to a Muslim about Islam. How do we meaningfully engage with their faith, and why does that matter? Well, because, first of all, when it comes to the mindset behind most people who would hold to this worldview, you're talking to an individual who, even if you present them all the evidence for Christianity, their imams and sheikhs, which is their teachers and their scholars, are going to be able to twist the truth just enough to say, oh yeah, they agree with everything you do, you just need to compromise on these three uh, and I say this sarcastically, uh, secondary issues like the nature of God and the Trinity, the nature of salvation, and the person of Jesus Christ. As long as we agree on that, then we're all good. Christians are just like you. Of course, the Quran, the Hadith, and Sunnah, and Tafsir would all say the opposite, but don't let the facts stand in the way of your feelings, or your community for that matter. Uh, when it comes to why you need to know Islam if you're going to engage with Muslims or Muslim sympathizers, it's because we live in a day and age that's just boasting and proud about anything and any, everything contrary to those awful Western cultures. And if they're going to shore up this idea of Islam as this indomitable bastion of progress, truth, security, and family values, then what needs to be attacked isn't what you're trying to build up. You need to understand the obstacles, what needs to be overcome. So when you're talking to a Muslim about Islam, the reason why you need to be informed, and this is speaking from a testimony of an ex-Muslim, now glorified saint, Nabil Qureshi, uh, he made the observation that when he and his friend were talking about Christianity, the gospel, and everything in between, he said, you know, I'd give you a 90% surety that everything you're saying about Christianity is true, but no matter what you said to me, this is post-conversion, I was 100% sure that Islam was true. So no matter what you said contrary to Islam, it wouldn't matter because I was that certain of my own belief. And that's why it became so important for Nabil to not only hear what Jesus said, but also the horrible things Muhammad has said and done. Because in his eyes, he was the most perfect human being that has ever existed. And if that wasn't assailed, if that wasn't challenged, then he'd have no reason to seek anything else. So if you want to know the uh, dirty laundry, so to speak, and how to effectively communicate these things to people, three resources I'd usually recommend if you prefer books, which I, of course, would always encourage. I'd start with The History of Jihad from Muhammad to ISIS by Robert Spencer. He provides all of his sources and going through exclusively Islamic sources, by the way. Everything from Muhammad as far as motivating his goal for global conquest and the means by which he tried to achieve that, all the way to the mid or I guess the early 2000s, going into the time of ISIS's rise to power. But in sourcing all of that information, you can notice a trend here and that Islam didn't have these golden ages, these eras of peace, this uh, peaceful cohabitation with Christians and Jews, and it was those awful crusaders that ruined everything. He's not shy about admitting when Christians tried to fulfill the role of government and ended up crossing serious lines and attacking Jewish settlements and going against the bishop's orders in raiding those towns and attacking civilian targets, or even resorting to cannibalism even, when they were making their way past Lebanon. 
the point is that if you start with that book, A History of Jihad from Muhammad to ISIS, you're going to get the picture from Muslims that modern-day Muslims would either rather you didn't know or that they don't know themselves. The second resource I'd recommend when it comes to meaningful engagement is, again, a work by Nabil Qureshi, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. Uh, his testimony in the thought process that he was going through, the debates that he had both before, during, and after his journey to Christ, and the kind of perspective that you're going to need to recognize, as well as some of the arguments you'd want under your belt that were meaningful to him as a devout Muslim on the outside looking in to Christianity. And then finally, when it comes to written resources, I'll get into the internet resources here in a moment, the, I think, most effective way to engage with Muslims, this has at least been my approach, is that if you make a claim, you show them where and when. And the best way to get that information to them that hasn't been sanitized or censored by people who are translating their resources into English but kind of fudging the information so that Westerners don't catch on, I'd recommend, again, The Critical Quran by Robert Spencer. Uh, he's a very prolific writer, if you haven't noticed. And his going through the uh, Quran, I think the Arabic's kind of meh. If you want an actual Arabic-to-English translation, Usama Dakdok, if you want spelling for that, let me know. But he uh, provided a word-for-word Arabic-to-English translation of the Quran, the generous Quran. That's actually my copy that I keep with me, the one that's uh, referenced on the program. But if you want notes, footnotes, references to variations in the text, the implications, other passages that cover the details you're going to need to ask questions about. The Critical Quran, I think, is a fantastic resource as well. It's only been out for about a year, and I hope that it gains traction. As far as online resources, this can be much more straightforward. Um, David Wood's YouTube channel, of course, is being censored and throttled every single chance they get. But if you look up the name David Wood, it's currently under Act 17 Polemics, and then he'll have other channels as well that he'll use when YouTube starts yeah. to target him as well. David Wood is a great resource. He was the individual that ministered to Nabil during the time where he needed to hear the gospel. Yeah, they and, were roommates. Yeah, and his uh, sarcasm and uh, dry wit is a man after my own heart. Natun uh, Tosh is a Turkish convert from Islam to Christianity and a lioness of the faith. She's usually associated with P-F-A-N-D-E-R films, but any video featuring her and how she engages with Muslims in England is also fantastic. And then, of course, if you are more into lengthy, prolonged discussions with Muslims, a uh, very recent resource has risen up, Thaddeus from Reasoned Answers. I'd recommend him as well. There are others. I'll uh, switch it around every yeah, now and Fander again. Yeah, Fander is started by Jay Smith, so you can find any. He does some really great church presentations where it's like a whole seminar that you can find online where he's presenting at a church, giving you the history, his arguments uh, from a more academic sense, uh, also a very good resource. Yeah, him and uh, Robert Spencer engage regularly on uh, some of their resources. In fact, um, Jay Smith was one of the ones who popularized the material in Robert Spencer's early book, Did Muhammad Exist?, mm. in examining yeah. the historical problems with Islam, which we can talk about another time. And what something people don't understand is that the kind of textual criticism that occurred for Christianity, for the New Testament especially, uh, has been going on for over a hundred and some years, never ever has happened with the Quran until now. I mean, some on purely academic grounds, but it was never 
anything that was published or put out in the public. Because the, idea the people of, doing it were threatened and yeah. had to move and change their names. Yeah, and it's amazing that when you were to, if you were to do a comparative analysis between the textual criticism of the New Testament versus what we're learning just now in the about last the five Quran, years, yeah, about the about the history of the Quran, it's night and day as far as arguments for preservation. Uh, who were, were these actually written by eyewitness uh, eyewitness accounts? Uh, the Quran is falling apart, and people are leaving Islam in droves. An avalanche of apostasy. Not my words, theirs. Yeah. Wow. Well, we uh, are a little quiet on our social media platforms, but I did look through some of our emails. Want to do our Bible contradiction for the day? Yeah, let's do that. Let's do our Bible contradiction for the day. Okay, this, uh, he said sarcastically, is going to be a tough one. Um, if you could turn, Dad, to Mark 12 verses 35 through 37, uh, taken from atheist.com, this challenge to the validity of the Bible as to whether or not it can keep its facts straight is a challenge. Uh, this is challenge number 49, by the way. So we've been through a couple of these. Uh, oh, no. Will, yeah, he already knows. <laughs> oh, uh, will the Messiah be a descendant of David? According to 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 13, which is the prophecy that Messiah would be from the line of David, is a statement that they would claim is a yes, and we would agree. We'll get to that more in a second. But in the Gospel of Mark chapter 12 and verse 35, apparently the Bible is inconsistent about that. It says no. Now, of course, atheist.com and other resources that would share this do not provide the passages, just the references to the passages, and as is often the case, they're assuming that their audience aren't going to look these things up for themselves, so we'll do that. Um, could you read, Dad, for us Mark 13, or Mark 12, excuse me, verse 35, so that we can get an idea of the, uh, well, how special this actually is. Yeah, uh, the context of this is Jesus is uh, kind of going head-to-head with the scribes and the Pharisees. They've been peppering him with questions, and now he's got a question for them. Then Jesus answered and said, while he taught in the temple, how is it the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? For David himself said, by the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, David himself calls him Lord. How is he then his son? And the common people heard him gladly. The parallel account of the book of Matthew chapter 12, 22 says from that point onward, they didn't dare ask him any questions. So this was a response to a series of challenges they were making towards him. And he asked them a question. The question then is that if we read that verse, is it a denial of Messiah being his son? Or is it pointing out an inconsistency in their thought? Well, I think it was uh, essentially uh, what we call begging the question, uh, because uh, there was only one way to answer this question. You either had to deny that the Messiah was David's son, or you had to deny what David himself said about David's son, that he would also be his Lord. Well, how can those two things be true at the same time? Well, we would go to the book of Isaiah, chapter 9 and verse 6. We would say, unto us a son is born, unto us a child is given, and the government shall rest upon his shoulders. He shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Almighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. So, so he is David's son, in a sense, biologically, 
but he is also his Lord and has been so from eternity. So let's verify that first statement. They do give the passage, 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 12, they say, when your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, this is Nathan speaking to David, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, verse 14, and he shall be my son. And then goes on to note, if he commits iniquity, I will chasten with the rod of men, but with the blows of the sons of men, my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I remove before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you, your throne shall be established forever. So this is the passage that not only these atheists, to their credit, will put forward and say, Messiah has to be son of David. Right? right, He had to have to biologically Which we prove. would thoroughly agree. Yeah, yeah. Matthew chapter yeah. 1, Luke chapter 3, both show a genealogy tying him directly to the family of David. They split after Solomon, but that's the, or at Solomon, but that's the point. If we ask the question, what is Jesus claiming? A denial of Messiah being son of David or a question to show their bad logic? And another example would be, okay, is the Bible contradicting itself, or do you even know what a contradiction is? Now, the atheist in this case would say, well, see, they claim to know what a contradiction is, but by asking if they know what a contradiction is, that proves that they don't know it. No, I'm asking the question because you clearly don't understand what you're arguing. And this is why we always want to, you to be informed about this. What is a contradiction? A contradiction is a violation of the second formal law of logic, which is that A does not equal non-A. Two things in the same way and in the same sense can't both be true and at the same time cancel each other out. That's what we mean by a contradiction. If the Bible claims A, this statement, and it also claims in the same way and in the same sense the opposite are both true at the same time, then the Bible has a problem. It can't keep its facts straight. But if you say A and not A, or B, or C, or anything to do with the comparison is a contradiction, then the one in error is the one who's using the contradiction. Four-syllable word, because it sounds impressive. But the reality is that 99% of the time, actually 49, 49 times out of 50 now, uh, we're dealing with someone who is confusing a contradiction with one of four things. First, inability to read one verse prior or one verse before. That's usually what ends up answering the question. Second, the idea of a, catch this everyone, error in translation. Not an error in the Bible, but a claim that was made, translated from Hebrew or Greek into English, and it comes out differently. They go off of the sound of it, but you can access the original resources online if you're willing to produce the effort. Emphasizing differences of detail, two accounts that say essentially the same thing, but include other details like we've seen before. Right. Was it one angel or one guy that was talking that the passage focuses on? It doesn't say only one guy was there. It mentions one guy because he's the one who did the talking. That's not a contradiction. It's an emphasis on detail. And then, of course, just outright lying about the text. If we 
purposefully misrepresent something, we're the liar, not the pastor that's in error. If we don't take the time to understand the text, like we've seen here, we're in error, not the text. If we don't understand that this passage was not originally written in English, and we don't like the way it's formatted, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 contradict each other. How can God create the heavens and the earth and then create mankind after the seventh day? Hebrew history written differently than right. 21st century Americans. If, I, I won't say what I think. The point <laughs> being made is that. You don't know what a contradiction is, then don't use the word. If you do know what a contradiction is and give us things like this, then you need to check your character because this is dishonest or you've been misinformed and you're passing this on from other people who are dishonest, like you said, the Tubigan and Wellhausen schools, the people who have been criticizing the Bible for the last century and a half. The point being made, though, is this. We're one away from their top 50 Bible contradictions on their list, and we are still Christians. None of these have been impressive because they just keep making the same mistake over and over again. And I'm being smarmy because it is, in fact, due this kind of reprimand. If someone says the Bible contradicts itself, you only need to ask one and only one question. Actually, two questions. Where and when? Because if they can provide a specific example and you actually look it up, you've taken two steps farther than most people in these conversations. If you look it up and are willing to read more than just the passage, or you've gotten so jaded by it, as you can tell we have in <clears throat> dealing with these kind of issues, and you realize none of these are original and none of these have gotten any better, dealing with it is going to take maybe a first grade literacy test as a precursor. And then, of course, when you're talking to people about these things, and they are sincere, which is possible, they're passing on information that they have taken from dishonest people, then you can say, well, if this was not, in fact, what you made it out to be, or what someone else made it out to you to be, then what do you think about the Bible? Because it seems a bit more consistent than you thought. Hmm. There you go. Well, I'm going back into our inbox and our email, and I saw... Look, I think most of the questions that we've been receiving the last week have uh, been answered, but uh, I guess I could maybe adapt one that I thought was a good question about people cohabiting together when they're not married. Um, this person asked, well, what if they're sleeping together, yeah, but not having, you know, not having intercourse, but what if they're just living in the same house? Like, yeah, let's that's say what we dealt with. You know yeah. that as well. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know that we really got into the idea of... Uh, like being roommates or things along that line. Uh, there are some people, and we touch base on avoiding all appearance of evil. That seems to be the guiding principle. But even more, First uh, Thessalonians chapter 4, this is a scripture we didn't really get a chance to get to, but I think it really sheds light on all of this. Paul said, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that is, that you grow in the character of Jesus Christ, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all such. And so, and as we also forewarned you and testified, for God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Therefore, he rejects this, does not reject man, but God, who has also given us his Holy Spirit." Uh, so, you know, the, the, the principle that I think we see here uh, that I think provides clarity and they, well, you know, we're just, you know, economics and, and so on. We mentioned, you know, this is 
something that is really alive and kicking, not just for people who just graduated from college or something like that, but also for people who retired. So, well, you know, if we got married, we'd lose our benefits and, you know, so on, and we promise not to fool around and, and all of this. Well, the problem is no one lives for himself and no one dies for himself. If we live, we live to the Lord. We die, we die for the Lord. And, you know, the, the, the thing that the Lord has us here to do in this world is to shine, to be different, to keep our behavior, as Peter said, excellent among the Gentiles. Because one of the things I think you discover uh, when you've been a Christian for any length of time is that non-Christians are real experts at Christian behavior. Christian morality and ethics. Mm. And the minute you identify yourself as a believer in Jesus, they start watching you like a hawk. Now, some people will say, you know, that's just not fair. You know, everybody else in the office gets away with this. I took home a thing of paper clips and they called me a thief and, you know, called me a hypocrite and all this other stuff. And everybody else, you know, helps themselves to everything. Well, of course, but they're not making any spiritual claims. They're not saying, well, I've been born again through God's Spirit, or I have a personal relationship mm. with Jesus, or, or, you know, I spend every day reading his words and I want to follow him. Well, the minute you say that, you've set yourself up to be evaluated on a completely different standard. And sometimes I think uh, non-believers will go so far as to kind of pick at us and scratch at us because they want to find out if our Christianity is real or if it's just painted on. You know, if it's just a thin veneer uh, that we put on as far as our religiosity or our worldview or philosophy, uh, but they want to find out, okay, is this relationship with God truly real? And so I would say to somebody, well, you, you know, your motives might be right as rain and pure as a driven snow, and, you know, you've got padlocks on the door, so there's no temptation or whatever, um, but your neighbor doesn't know that. And people that probably won't take the time to listen to your well-worked rationalization for why you're doing what you're doing won't do that. All they'll know is that you and this member of the opposite sex leave from the same door early on Sunday morning, get into the car with the fish on the back, and drive to church. Mm. And they know you're not married. And they do the math. Now, you might be you know, completely innocent and, you know, oh, it's not fair because they're judging me and all that stuff. Well... Who said life was fair? Who said non-believers are going to judge you fairly? That's why we are to keep our behavior excellent among the Gentiles. Not just pretty good, but we are to continually ask ourselves this question. Is the way I've set up my life situation, is the way that, uh, say, I pay my taxes, is the way that I decide to drive on the highway, do I look at that as something that I want to present to God as a living sacrifice, or do I just want to do the minimum to get by without me feeling a guilty conscience? Do I realize that I'm here for more than just what's easy or what is going to be the path of least resistance in this life, mm. but that I need to go that extra mile to demonstrate the love and life of Jesus? And if that just doesn't really appeal to you or that's not really a factor and you are a genuine believer in jesus uh, there's a promise in god's word for you uh, in proverbs chapter 3 we are told my son do not despise the chastening of the lord nor let your heart detest his correction for every son the lord receives he corrects even as a father the son in whom his heart delights god's going to take you to the woodshed 
Sooner or later, he's going to do an attitude adjustment. Sooner or later, you're going to find out that whatever gains you thought you were uh, achieving by your lifestyle setup uh, are nothing compared to the losses you're going to receive mm. when your credibility is called into question. What more important thing do you have than your good name? Mm. You know. Wow. So um, I, I think it's definitely something that needs reiterating because uh, uh, it is real. I, our culture, I think, uh, I think you'd probably agree, Sean, it's post-Christian now, right? As far as morality goes. A lot of individuals are. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, the idea Inside of, and outside the church. Yeah, living together is sort of like a, a... no. I mean, it's a no-brainer as far as culture is concerned. Yeah, why wouldn't you? Well, it's part of... It's yeah. almost part of courtship. Yeah, yeah. And, you live together for a couple of years, <clears throat> and you decide if you're going to get married or not. When I was on the dating scene, I remember... Uh, I thought you were going to say when I was on the dating game. I said, oh, hey, no. <laughs> this is a chapter in your life we've no, never this, heard about. This is going back, but uh, I, I decided to poke my head into that Christian Mingles site, and I remember talking to someone who said, oh, I, I could never marry someone without having sex with them because I wouldn't know, and I just was shocked. I thought, well, so much for it being called Christian Mingles. <laughs> well, the Mingles part was probably true. but <laughs> Yeah, and, and it's a challenging thing for... Because families are not as tight-knit as we used to be when you have family members who, you know, all churchgoers, all raised by uh, Christian parents in the same church, and then people start going their separate ways. And, and then, you know, how do you, how do you wrestle with someone um, who has a real deep love and concern for a family member who's, you know, maybe tainting their good name at the very least, um, and uh, but doesn't have really... Uh, they're not going to the same church. You know, I, I know with my family, I have situations where I'm really sticky with my my siblings, uh, specifically, um, who were once believers who have now renounced their faith. But I, 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 you know, how do I talk to them? And how do I, other than just loving them, but when it comes to major moral decisions that are affecting their own children, and, uh, how you know, how do you... How do you, in love, like, you know, your title today is polemicist. How do you be uh, a truth bearer, but at the same time not wrecking bridges and burning bridges? Same way you deal with the college students that are pro-Hamas and pro-terrorists. You leave the door open for truth, but understand that God gives them the same dignity that you ought to, and that is to make their own mistakes. Now, if their decisions are putting their children in danger, I think that you can get the police involved and act in love completely in that situation. But if they're, you know, just living the way of the world and you see mm -hmm. that they're instilling very negative values into their psyches, yeah. those kids will be able to make their own decisions. They mm -hmm. can be rebellious the right direction. <laughs> but the idea, I think, behind that is um, much like, you know, people that I consider friends in my own life and they're going their own way and some have even completely destroyed themselves. My one and only approach is of all the people in their life that have taken advantage of them, mm -hmm. abused them, I was the exception. The only thing that they're going to remember in departing from me was that A, I didn't leave them, and B, I'm still willing for them to come back. Mm -hmm. That if they ask me questions, I'll answer them, and I'll answer them mm -hmm. honestly. If they want to show up, I'm not going to slam the door in their face or turn them away. Right. But at the same time, the boundaries I think that they've set up would be respected in a way where the nature of God can be reflected and honored in that, because he hasn't struck them with a lightning bolt either. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes sense. <clears throat> Leave the doors of communication open. When you have an opportunity to share truth, share it. 
but let them yeah, not let necessarily go chasing down people or, or even <laughs> or even wait a for stick. a teachable moment. You know, I mean, oftentimes uh, it's amazing uh, how people will actually come to us. You know, when the inevitable uh, consequences of walking without God comes in, and they'll say things like, "Well, you know, could you?" pray for me about that or mm. or you know right. you know what's going on and you know i don't know what to think or you know what would you do or you know mm. yeah, and and you know at that point then you have the opportunity to be able to share but that's where patience comes in mm. you just have to wait and be wise and look for that that moment where there's that that openness there especially in sticky situations with your own relatives yeah yeah it's uh it's a challenge and you know we we think of issues like church discipline but that usually involves your own church. And I remember hearing a, a story of Josh McDowell being picked up by, a, by one of his hosts. He was going to speak at a church. Pastor picks him up, and on the drive, he just turns to him and goes, so are you faithful to your wife? And the pastor was just beside himself. He goes, how dare you? I mean, who? how dare He goes, I'm a Christian, and you're a Christian, and we are here to hold each other accountable. I have every right to ask you that question. Now, I don't know if I if you would agree with him or not, but Hopefully I, the next <laughs> sentence was yes, but what brought that up? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I was I just remember hearing that story and and I thought, wow, that's very brazen of someone. <laughs> but then again, that is the way Josh McDowell sort of rolls, or at least has rolled in the past several decades. <laughs> yeah. I do too, but for different reasons. I just enjoy seeing people uncomfortable. <laughs> um, here's a fun one um, there's anything more to add on that question do you guys maybe want to finish off the broadcast with some of my hate mail or, or uh, did you want to uh, tackle the psychic surgery be able to deal with that this week or um, you know yeah we were uh, we were talking uh, a bit about uh, the uh, the whole idea of uh, psychic surgery when that comes up I'm trying to remember the exact context of those remarks but, it was the uh, the the Brazilian John, oh, yeah. John of God. <laughs> yeah, we we did get a. I'm sorry, uh, we did get a question on uh, my Twitter feed about uh, John of God, who was uh, strongly promoted by Oprah Winfrey. If you don't know about John of God, he was a fellow in Brazil who claimed to have healing powers, claimed to be sort of maybe semi the Messiah. People would come from all over to uh, be healed by him. And he got such an international reputation, as I mentioned, Oprah Winfrey uh, promoted him and said she saw wonderful and marvelous things uh, going on down there in Brazil. And uh, the uh, 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 caller, uh, or the, uh, the texter, uh, Ron, wanted to know what our thoughts were on John of God. In fact, Ron is a doctor, so I think it's kind of an interesting thing. Mm. And uh, you know, one of the claims made was that he was able to heal people with a touch, or that he would be lay hands on people and he would be able to hold up, you know, what he called tumors and things along this line. Adrian, you're a professional illusionist. Uh, is this a miracle? Is this uh, proof of supernatural healing powers, or is there a far more, maybe less fun, but more accurate explanation. <laughs> it might be, le well, I don't know about less fun. It, it's actually very interesting, but uh, my mentor, Andre Cole, uh, during the 70s was asked by the Federal Trade Commission to investigate what was called psychic surgery, the same types of phenomena that people were claiming were taking place in the Philippines. So Time Magazine, and he, you know, it was a big deal where he went down and sat in on 50 healing services where people were performing this, what's called psychic surgery. 
And I did read up on this John of God. He does perform similar things where supposed doctors would come in and witness him, and they say, yeah, he reached into this guy's eye, he performed surgery, and then the wound was instantaneously healed, and he pulled out, and the person could, their eyesight improved, he would stick needles in people's feet, and they wouldn't feel anything. And and these are all very much in line with the ta- the same type of techniques. So what psychic surgery is, is that... <clears throat> Let's say you have stomach cramps or you have a backache or you have, in one case, that Andre Cole sat in on, the person who was being worked on had diabetes. So the surgeon went into their body with a spoon and scooped out several spoons of sugar and say, now we got the sugar out of you, now you're cured of your diabetes. I never <laughs> knew that was the problem. So... <laughs> What they'll do is they'll pull up your shirt, you lay it on a table. In fact, I, I think I have some images here that I well, We got about 30 seconds before the closing music starts. All so. right. That's, uh, uh, this is uh, in South Asia. So this is what the position person would be looking like, and they would reach in and p- apparently pull out the disease. And, of course, in this case, I pulled out a rubber chicken from this individual. And... Uh, um, Oh, I didn't put it up on the screen. My apologies. But anyhow, the uh, the surgeon would produce, like a sleight-of-hand artist, things from the person's body. And they would create the illusion of actually performing a surgery. So they would reach in with the fingers and make it look like they were pulling out tissue. But it's all a sleight-of-hand act. It's very clever. But it, there's nothing going on. And, and what we discovered was that only people with what was called functional illnesses were being healed. Things that could not be detected on a, <laughs> on a microscope or so on. They weren't actually being healed by anything. Yeah. Well, there you go. Well, so, thanks Ron, for tuning I hope in. that helped. <laughs> we'll see you again on Monday. God bless you. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word, one question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.